0: Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Israel was to be holy to the Lord. We are called to be holy to the
1: Lord. What does holy mean? Well, in its broader sense, it means different, but not different for the sake of being different. It's different because it's special.
0: Jeremiah has already had a vision from God. Now he hears the word of the Lord. As Jeremiah becomes more intimate with God, Israel moves further away. What can we learn? Let's join Dr. Corbett now.
1: Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak to our hearts now. Lord, as your word is spoken by this human vessel, I pray that it would be transmitted into our hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit, into our spirits. Father, I pray that we would leave here knowing you better knowing you more and knowing something that we didn't know before so that lord we can know you better and know you more and make you known father there are people here whose walk with you has gone cold it's it's gone stale and i pray oh god that the fire of the holy spirit would consume them today. I pray, Father, for those of us who have become distracted by the things of this world and the things of this life, that, Lord, our vision would be lifted and that we would see what should transfix our sight. Father, grip us today in your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the second of the major prophets of the Bible. And a part of our strategy here over the last two years or so has been to go through the entire Scriptures and and give us all a, a better understanding, not only of what the Bible says, but how it fits together. In one sense, I could, in probably in about 10 minutes, give you the entire story of Jeremiah. But we're going to miss some of the richness. And like a good bushwalk, there are times when you just have to stop and look at the flowers. Wonder at what you're looking at. And so that's what I hope to do today. And as we, as we have already looked at Jeremiah, I remind you that Jeremiah lived just... He, he was probably born somewhere around 600 BC, 610, 620 or thereabouts. And he was called by God in an unmistakable way. And that, that call came to Jeremiah, as we'll see in a moment, in, in very graphic ways, very graphic visions, very graphic, perhaps, Dreams, the kind of dreams that I guess you would be caught up in without really appreciating that this is a dream. And Jeremiah, in those visions or dreams, was was interacting with with God who who called him. And the thing that we see in chapter 1 is that Jeremiah wasn't looking for the call. He wasn't going, gee, I wish I could be a prophet. Where do I apply? He wasn't doing that. God chose him. And here's something that I have found reassuring for my own life. God chose me. I want you to get that because God chose you. God chose you. God chose you. And... When I'm done sharing this message, I'm going to invite those who've never responded to that call of God to respond. Because it demands a response. You can't know this and be passive. You can't. This is something that demands a response. And Jeremiah responded. And at times we read that he says, I wish I hadn't. I don't want to do this. It's too hard. And so we read in chapter 1 where God commissions him and God says, I called you before. He says in verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That Hebrew word to know is the word yada or yador. You often hear people Use that word when they want to say, I know, I know, I know. They say, yada, yada, yada. (laughs) Hear that? Be careful because Adam, yada, Eve, and she conceived. So just be careful what you're saying. (laughs) And God calls... Jeremiah and says, where I call you, you will not want to go. What I give you to say, you won't want to say it, but I will be with you. Go and speak and don't be afraid of them. And I've said before, that would make me afraid, hearing God say that. (laughs) If it wasn't for the fact that God said it. Because when God says something like that, there is power in the word to obey. Let me state that again. When God calls for obedience, he does so with his word. And his word empowers obedience. I think it's one of the reasons why we need to be in church on a Sunday. And we do have certain... Do we call them sacraments? Do we call them ordinances, depending on how you define the terms? And I'm sure Tony and Bob could have an interesting discussion over the nature of sacrament. And and for some people, a a sacrament or an ordinance is is something that that not, not just reminds or says something, but it actually, in an indirect sense, administers the grace of God. And the grace of God can come through the preaching of the word. And Jeremiah, when he received the word of God, he was empowered to obey it. Empowered to obey it. That's why I think we need church on a Sunday. And we need the word of God preached on a Sunday. It empowers us to obey. We celebrate communion and as Tony said, it reminds us. And we need, there are certain things we need to remember. We need to constantly remember. And that's, the, that's really the word ordinance. It's to be reminded. And as Jeremiah was charged with the word of God, we come through to the end of chapter 1 and we see that, that he's given an overview of what this is all about. He says in the opening two, three verses that... He prophesied during the reign of three of Judah's kings King Josiah, King Jehoiakim, and uh, King, uh, who was Mataniah, who, uh, Jehoiakim. I'm not sure if that's mentioned there. But there were the three kings that he ministered to. And what we're about to read in chapter 2 is is some of the earliest prophecies he got. In fact, we're going to see something I think is quite startling here. So as we look at Jeremiah, the prophet who wept, the prophet who was gripped by his own word, the prophet who felt what God was saying, not just said what God was saying, we're going to see that this prophet is now going to come back on the scene Chapter 1, he's maybe 12 years old, 13, maybe. Around about this time in the history of Israel, the law was rediscovered. And Jeremiah's father was a priest responsible for teaching that law. And so young Jeremiah, about the time he was called to be a prophet, would have heard his father teaching the law, and he himself would have taken that on board. Now... We're a few years down the track. He's perhaps approaching 20 or so. And we come to chapter 2. And I'm introducing this to you as Jeremiah and the word of the Lord. Before it's been Jeremiah and visions from God. Now it's Jeremiah and the word of the Lord. And I guess there's an interesting point here. Jeremiah as we'll see in a moment, had come to a point where he didn't need dreams and visions anymore. As a young boy, God spoke to him through that means. But now he's sensing the word of the Lord. So come with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is what we read. The word of the Lord came to me, saying... Let's just ponder that for a moment. The word of the Lord came to me, saying... The word of the Lord came to me. How does the word of the Lord come to a person? You see, this tells us something about what was going on between the reluctant Jeremiah of chapter 1 and the now emerging prophet Jeremiah of chapter 2. We're going to see that Jeremiah is told in a moment, in the, in the next part of this, go and proclaim this in public in Jerusalem. We'll come to that in a moment. I just want you to see this point. I want you to ponder this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. How does that happen? My understanding is that as we read on in Jeremiah, we find Jeremiah doing this, going out into the wilderness, talking with God, praying with God, praying to God talking with God at times he writes some of his prayers down we, we have in this book of Jeremiah some of the most amazing prayers where Jeremiah is praying to God I'm really afraid I'm really tired I'm really weary I don't want to go on please use someone else you may want to pick up some of those prayers sometime and make them your own and so we have Coming back to this chapter 2, the insight that, that this Jeremiah was no longer dependent upon dreams and visions and ecstatic experiences. He was now someone who had come to recognize the word of the Lord. He understood the language of God. He understood God's language. He understood the way God spoke. He understood the way God could communicate to his heart. What's happened to get to that point? Sounds to me like Jeremiah has undergone a deepening of his relationship with God. Jeremiah has now developed intimacy with God. And this is what I... I just want to ponder this for a moment because I'm challenged by this. I've had people say, that God doesn't speak to people like he spoke to the prophets anymore. God has given us his word and that's it. Want to hear from God? Hear from God through this. I believe that. I totally believe that. I believe in in the sense that yes, God does speak through his word. And this is primarily how God speaks. And if you want to hear God, you want wisdom from God, direction from God, here it is. Here it is. But you know what I read in here? That God by His Spirit, this is what the Word says, that God by His Spirit can communicate into our hearts. God by His Spirit can still give dreams and visions. God by His Spirit can still put things in our hearts. And I've heard people say, well, if God's speaking, it'll be abundantly clear. And I found that sometimes even the prophets weren't sure. I read in Second Peter that the prophets, they weren't sure whether it was God or what God was actually saying. So it seems to me like there's a great deal of faith involved in developing a relationship with God. Faith and trust. Faith and trust where we are sensing God speak. And Jeremiah has come to this point. One commentator Professor R.K. Harrison has said this. Precisely how the word came to Jeremiah is not stated. But Jeremiah makes it apparent that the prophetic message issued from a close spiritual fellowship existing between himself and God. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So here's my question. If the word of the Lord came to Andrew Corbett, would Andrew Corbett recognize it? Could you ask that question of yourself? If God's word came to you, could you recognize it? Would you receive it? Jeremiah is at that point in his relationship where he is so sensitive to God, the word of the Lord came. Yes, Lord, he hears it, he receives it. I want to be in that place. I want to be in that place. And I've found that you can be studious in your study of Scripture and yet spiritually lazy. Not to stretch. Spiritually. To want to be in that place of heart communion with God. So Jeremiah has developed deep intimacy with God. And I think this is important because when Jeremiah speaks, we're now going to see that Jeremiah's heart is pounding in sync with God's heart. And we're going to, just in these next three verses, these first three verses, we're going to hear the love heart of God for his people. God has a heart of love for his people and at times the language is extremely intimate. Where he speaks of his relationship with his people as being like a honeymoon. A bridegroom and his new bride. And everything they did to express their love for each other. That is intimate language. So this is what we read as Jeremiah is about to speak to Israel at their spiritual condition. Now here's the interesting thing. The law of the Lord had been discovered. The law of the Lord was being taught. Josiah had re-established the feasts of Israel. We as a church celebrated a remembrance of one of those feasts just recently when we celebrated together our Passover explanation meal where we went through what the Jews would go through in order to celebrate the Passover. Passover. And this has been reinstituted. The people are now partaking of the feasts of Israel and they haven't done so for hundreds of years. The law is being taught. The word is being preached. People are attending the temple to hear it. They are attending the the, the meetings put on by the priests. They are hearing the word. They are hearing the word. They are doing the religious observances. All looks well, doesn't it? And it's at this time, during the reign of King Josiah, because we read that from here down to Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 6, this is happening in the reign of King Josiah, one of the best kings Judah ever had. During the reign of one of the best kings Judah ever had, Jeremiah says, your hearts are far from God. And honestly, I think if we were there, we would have looked at Jeremiah, looked at the people and gone, what are you talking about? They're carrying Bibles to church. They're smiling as they get out of their cars. They're coming into church. They're raising their hands. They're singing the songs. All looks pretty good, Jeremiah. Gosh, you're hard to please. And Jeremiah was out of step with everything that everybody thought was the condition of Israel. He says, your hearts are hard. And you aren't doing this from your heart. You come and you play the game and you go home and you do God only knows what. And he accuses them of drunkenness and immorality. And yet they would come to the temple and look religious. And this was the spiritual condition of Israel. But it wasn't immediately obvious. It gets far more obvious after Josiah dies. After chapter 3, where we start to read of the spiritual condition of God's people, because a godly leader had died, Israel's condition becomes far worse. So we read here in, in this section, and we're only going to look at the first three verses, we, we read of God's heart for his people. So I want you to see here that God tells Israel what they were called to be, what they were called to be. And as we do this, we're going to see three things, three particular aspects to the call of God on their life. And this is what I want you to see, is that what Israel was called to be, the church is called to be. And I'll show you that in a moment. So, we're going to read Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Verse 3, Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest, And all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. I think there's three things that we can see here. And I want to establish that the way God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is speaking to Israel, the New Testament writers pick up this language of these three verses. For example, if you're taking notes, you may want to note this. Philippians chapter 3 And verse 3 speaks of the new covenant people being exactly that, people of the covenant. And the way the new covenant does it is to call New Testament believers the real circumcision, the real circumcision. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, that's. That's an amazing statement because there's a huge debate that goes on in the New Testament about why circumcision is completely unnecessary. And yet the New Testament says, if your heart belongs to Christ, you have been circumcised. And in a physical way, circumcision spoke of spiritual matters of the heart. And to be circumcised of heart is to remove the mask, remove the obstacles, to remove the objections and say, God, have your way in my life. Sometimes we put up masks, we put up barriers and we live less than circumcised lives. I don't want to live like that. Do you? I don't want to live like I'm always on guard. I don't want to live like that. I want God to have his way in my heart and I want nothing between him and my heart. I hope that's your prayer as well. We read in James chapter 1 and verse 18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. James 1.18 So James uses this language that Jeremiah uses here, firstfruits. The church is called to be firstfruits. Christians are called to be firstfruits. And we'll look at this in just a moment. Now notice in verse 2 it says this, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. What is it about a newlywed couple that God wants to bring out here to talk about his own relationship with his people? And let me ask this question. For those of you who are married, it may be easier to answer. But that time when you were when you proposed to your man, girls, and he said, yes, I will marry you. Um, Or when the guy proposed to the girls, the case may be. That love, that excitement leading up to the wedding, the first stages of the the new married life, pretty exciting. For Kim and I, our... our, uh, well, I was going to say, I'm not going to tell you about our wedding night, but I really I could. It was pretty boring, really. We got there and Kim goes, gee, I'm hungry. I'm going, darling, it's our wedding night. She goes, yeah, but I'd, I'd really prefer pizza. <laughs> pizza? You want pizza? Yeah. Okay, I'll go and get pizza. <laughs> so I did. We had pizza that night. Now, maybe our honeymoon isn't the best example, but there are couples where they get engaged, and it, it's exciting, and it was, it was exciting for me. I remember I took him out for a meal um, overlooking Cryo Key in Geelong, and I, I was dressed up, and... And I told her to get dressed up and, and then I walked to, we walked from the restaurant across the road and the moon was out and the stars were shimmering and it was shimmering off the water and, it, and the lights were soft and, and I reached into my pocket and I looked at her and she said to me, if you're going to do what I think you're going to do, you'd better get on your knees. <laughs> I hadn't finished the sentence. She said, and beg. So I did. I got down on my knees. I held her hands. I got the ring out and I said, will you marry me? I'm begging you. And she said, yes. And I was pretty happy. And we were married in less than a year. And we've had a great marriage. Great marriage. And God is picking up on this language of first love. Love between a a bridegroom and his bride. And God says, that's how it was with us, remember? That's how it was. You loved me, I loved you, I still love you, but you don't love me. And he says in in verse 2 that, You followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. And a newlywed couple will put up with a lot. When Kim and I got married, we had—we didn't even have a bed. We had a—we had two chairs. One of them now is in my office. That was our entire furniture. But it didn't matter. We were in love. We didn't need furniture. We just needed each other. We needed furniture pretty soon afterwards, but. <laughs> And God is saying, in the wilderness, you didn't have anything. You didn't have houses. You didn't have vineyards. You didn't sow crops. I looked after you. You depended upon me. We were happy together. When, we had no- when you had nothing, you had me. Wow. Sometimes stuff, things, comfort is a huge spiritual obstacle. You ever found that? G.K. Chesterton, the master of saying a lot with little, was once reported to have said when he saw a very obviously wealthy man walking toward him and past past him on the streets of London, G.K. Chesterton saw this very wealthy man and said, There but for the grace of God go I. G.K. Chesterton saw that God not making him as wealthy and as successful as that man was the grace of God. Sometimes we pray for success and I don't think we really know what we're praying for. You don't need might, which is success. You don't need riches, stuff. You need, as it says in Jeremiah 9.23... To know God, and that word to know is to love. To love. That's what we really need. And this is what God's saying. This is the language He's picking up here. You were devoted to me in your youth, like a bride to her new husband. Wow. Notice in verse three, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. I want you to see three things in this verse as we bring this to a close. These three things, the New Testament picks up on these three things and says, Church, pay attention. First thing, notice in verse three, it says, Israel was what? Holy to the Lord. Israel was to be holy to the Lord. We are called to be holy to the Lord. What does holy mean? Well, in its broader sense, it means different, but not different for the sake of being different. It's different because it's special. It's different because it's not common. It's different because it's not cheap and ordinary. It's not the lowest. It's the highest. It's that That crockery that you bring out of the glass cupboard when you have very special guests. It's not common. Israel wasn't to talk the way the world talks. They weren't to eat, drink and be merry the way the world was. They were to be different, holy. Now some people think holy is Keeping a set of rules and regulations and this defines whether you're holy or not. I know when I came into um, Pentecostal church very early on, there was great—you know, debates over whether women could wear makeup, whether that was holy. And I've seen some women without makeup and it, trust me, it's holy if you wear it. <laughs> But there were debates over whether you, could, whether you could listen to certain music. And I remember being in youth group and we, we, were, we, we were playing music backwards s- s- to find out that it was unholy. Mate, you could listen to it forwards and get a pretty good idea. <laughs> and so there was massive LP smashing nights and, and all, all this, uh, looking at me like LPs. Um, uh, it's a great big vinyl thing, it's a... <laughs> Before there was iTunes, there was LPs. There was... Before there was CDs, there was LPs. And we were told this is not holy, this is of the devil. To listen to John Farnham is of the devil. ABBA was of the devil. <laughs> ACDC was the devil. Antichrist, Devil's Child, apparently is what that, the band actually stood for. And we were told that if you didn't listen to this music and didn't watch those films and didn't wear makeup, you could be holy. Look, that is all outward stuff. Where does holiness start? Here, right in here. God, have your way in my heart. And when someone says, well, I'm going to do it anyway, I don't care what anyone thinks, chances are... There's a red flag waving right there. That's not holy. That's not the way a holy person thinks. I want you to consider this. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, it says this, You yourselves, like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, you see how he picks up the Old Testament language and says this is the role of the New Testament believer. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says it this way, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy nation. He's picking up the language of Jeremiah 2, verse 2, and he says... A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 5.27. The heart of God for his church, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Holy, a heart that is opened and given over to God. God, lead me, guide me, direct me. Help me to be the person you want me to be. Don't let hurt stand between your heart and God. Don't let offense stand between your heart and God. We're called to be holy. Those things must be dealt with. Forgiveness is necessary in order to be holy. The second thing we can see, it says in verse 3 that they were called to be the first fruits of the harvest. Israel was called to be the first fruits of the harvest. What harvest? The harvest of the nations. The harvest of the nations. Israel wasn't meant to be the only people saved. Israel was meant to be the first people saved. You're not meant to be the last fruits. You're meant to be the first fruits. We're not meant to be saved, and that's it. We're meant to be saved and to carry the message of salvation so that others can be saved. We're the first fruits, not the last, the first fruits. We see this in in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits, Paul says to these Gentile Christians, to be saved. So Paul links being saved as being a firstfruits to the Lord. The firstfruits was when Israel harvested their crops. The, the, the very first bit of it was given to God. This is yours. It's our way of saying, whatever comes after this is from you. That's why when we bring our offerings on Sunday, we bring the first, not the last. It's when we cut a watermelon in our house. Kim gets the first bit of the middle. Apparently that's the rules. I didn't know it was the rules, but apparently that's the rules. Kim gets the first juiciest bit of the watermelon. It is a rule, isn't it? But anyway, to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I want you to hear Paul's heart. And I want us to recognize that we're called to be first fruits, church. We are called to have a heart that says we want to see these seats filled. We want to see people come to know Christ. We want to see broken lives restored. We want to see people who don't know Jesus not become religious, but to come to know God. That's what we want. We're called to see people saved. In Romans chapter 10, verse 1, let this heart be our heart. He says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, his people, is that they may be saved. The implication is they are not. Because if they already were, that's a silly thing to say. When Jesus died on the cross, people we're not automatically saved. They need to receive salvation to be saved. And you may be here today and you may think, well, I'm okay with God. Nothing wrong with me. I'm all fine. That is not true. That is not what Jesus taught. It's not what the Bible teaches. You need to be saved. We are to be a first fruits. Paul writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 16. He says this, and and pick up his heart in this, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, he he had some opposition. Now, Now why was that a big deal that he had opposition? Because he says this, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved. What's the implication? If the Gentiles don't hear and receive the message of salvation, they can't be saved. Paul says so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. You see, if if someone prohibits, prevents the gospel from being preached, Paul says that's filling up the measure of their sin. But that's not all he says. But God's wrath will come upon them at last. And Jeremiah is going to make the same point in a moment. First Timothy, if you haven't got the point, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I hope we do. I hope we desire for all people to be saved. I hope we're prepared to make sacrifices. I hope we're prepared to get out of our comfort zone. I hope we're prepared to allow God to have his way in our heart so that our heart's desire can be, God, we want to see all people saved. That's what we want to see. And we see this. The, the, the third thing here is that all who ate of Israel incurred guilt. See, God, God has this guarding, protection heart for his people. God, God protects His people. Now the New Testament picks up this same theme in 1 Thessalonians chapter. Uh, sorry, First Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17 this is how Paul wrote to the Corinthians about the same idea that God will protect those he's called if anyone destroys God's temple God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that holy church we are called to live as if we are being jealously guarded by God jealously guarded by God you see If you know that you're jealously guarded by God, you're not going to be afraid of what others think of you. You may think, well, if I give my heart to Christ and people find out that I'm a Christian, they're going to make my life hell. And they may try. But God promises that he will guard you. He will keep you. And bigger picture than that is this, why why is it that the church has survived nearly 2,000 years? I think you could make a pretty good case that God has guarded the church. God has guarded the church. And I think the enemy wants to destroy the church. I think the enemy wants to keep the church apart. He wants to bring division to the church. It says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The, the devil wants to destroy the church and God wants to build the church. I want to be a part of the building program. I want to be that which helps to build the church. And Paul the Apostle in Acts 20 said that the devil would place shepherds in the church who are actually wolves. And he says... In Acts 20, some of you are are going to be like those wolves. Wow. And he says, but the Spirit of God will jealously guard the church. God guards our church. God guards churches. And what's the one thing that's required is that we walk in the covenant, in the relationship that God wants us to have with him. I want us. To be that kind of church do you want to be that kind of church yes. father help us to be the people that walk after you that that are forever asking you to have your way in our hearts we want to be a people who are holy we want to be a people who are the first fruits not the last fruits we want to be a people who take your message of salvation and share it with others We want to be a people that live under your protection and we place our lives under your guarding, jealous eye. Father, I pray for those right now who do not know Christ and Christ right now does not know them. And if you know I'm talking to you, I'm going to invite you right now in this attitude of prayer to invite Christ to be Lord of your life. If you know that's you, you know you need to surrender to Christ. You need to say, Christ, come into my heart. Take my heart and help me to live for you. Then make this your prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin cleanse me from all the wrong that I've done cleanse me from all the the hurt that I've suffered cleanse me from all the things that I've done that have hurt you and broken your heart and help me from this point to live for you I pray you pray a prayer like that your life can be changed both now and for eternity
0: Jeremiah becomes more intimate with God and Israel moves further away what can we learn? For a CD copy of tonight's message, the fourth in the series on Jeremiah, please contact Lagana Media via the website findingtruthmatters.org or at PO Box 1143 Lagana, Tasmania 7277. Podcasts and other resources are also available from the Finding Truth Matters website. To subscribe to the monthly e newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We invite you to join us at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.